My name is Diana Morris, and I'm the director of Open Society Institute here in Baltimore. Uh, we've had some really great conversations in the series this, uh, this year, and I know that tonight will be no exception. Uh, actually, we have one more uh, presentation coming up this uh, month, and I hope you'll join us. It's on October 27th, and we'll be hosting uh, University of Baltimore professor Elizabeth Nix, and she's going to talk very specifically about the history of segregation and structural racism here in Baltimore. Tonight, we're going to have the opportunity to talk about the rights of day laborers and domestic workers. Structural change in the job market um, has led to rapid increase in the number of day laborers, uh, particularly among immigrants and people of color. There was a UCLA survey that showed that almost half of all day laborers experienced wage theft in the two months prior to being surveyed, and one in five had suffered work-related um, injuries. Domestic workers uh, include the 2.5 million nannies and housekeepers and elderly caregivers in the United States who care for things that we treasure the most, our families. And yet, because they are made up largely of women and immigrants and people of color, they're not afforded the respect and the recognition and the worker protection they deserve. So tonight, we have a really wonderful group of people who have been focusing uh, their life's work on making sure that this group of people are well protected and to help us all recognize how it's in our own interest uh, for their lives and their working conditions um, to change. Uh, before I introduce our guests, I want to thank a few people who have um, made this series possible, uh, Vernon Reed and Sheila Murthy. We're very, we're very grateful to them. So we come to this work at the Open Society uh, because of our focus on looking at the impact and addressing the impact of racial discrimination uh, historically and, and in present. Uh, many of you are familiar with our program. We focus particularly on uh, over-incarceration, trying to obviously change that situation so that many fewer people of our residents in the city and state are caught up in that system. We're also focusing on education and hoping that kids will really get engaged in school and not be pushed out by the adults in those buildings. And we also focus on drug addiction treatment so that people have very easy access. And finally, many of you may know our community fellows. There's now 170 of them, and stay tuned. We're about to announce the next class. And these are a wonderful, dedicated group of entrepreneurs who are working through all of our neighborhoods uh, to really revitalize them. So tonight, we're going to be able to turn to this particular focus of day laborers and domestic workers. Uh, we'll be able to hear from our speakers about the history of racial exclusion that has really shaped uh, the conditions that day laborers and day workers face. We'll also look at how really these domestic workers are a canary in the mine uh, for the broader workforce and one more reason why we should be paying close attention. And we'll also be looking at some of the solutions that have come about in part because of the imp important work that these uh, two people have done to really build a movement and to push very effectively for change. We're going to hear uh, from Ai-jen Poo, uh, who is the director of the National D Domestic Workers Alliance. She's the co-director also of Caring Across Generations campaign. Uh, she is a 214 a MacArthur Fellow, and she's been named one of Time 
uh, 100 world's most influential people and one of Fortune's.com world's 50 greatest leaders. In 2000, um, she co-founded the Domestic Workers United, which is a New York organization that spearheaded the successful passage there of the state's historic domestic worker bill of rights. That was in 2010. Together with 11 other organizations, the Domestic Workers United launched what is now the, domestic, the National Domestic Workers Alliance in 2007. In 2011, she, care, she started what is called the Caring Across Generations campaign, and this is working to ensure that the nation's expanding aging population has affordable uh, care in their homes, and that in turn, caregiving jobs are actually quality jobs. Um, if you want to hear more from iGen after you hear it tonight, you can read uh, her book, The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. We're also going to hear from Gustavo Torres, who um, is a resident of Maryland and the executive director of Casa de Maryland. Gustavo was a labor organizer in his home country of Colombia before coming to the United States to escape persecution. He joined CASA first as a community organizer and has been its executive director since 1994. He's also the president of the board of the directors um, for the National Day Labor Organizing Network. Uh, many of you know that under Gustavo's leadership, CASA has grown from a small organization to really a national powerhouse. Uh, it is uh, a place for Latino organizing, uh, but also focuses on all immigrants and increasingly uh, day laborers, including many African-American day laborers. It, uh, CASA now has a staff of more than 100 people, and we're very happy that among its network is an office right here in Baltimore. Uh, Gustavo, too, has received many awards for his work, including the Ford Foundation's uh, prestigious Leadership for a Changing World Award. Our, our moderator tonight will be Rachel Micah Jones, and she's the founder and president of the Center uh, for Immigrants' Rights, which is the first transnational migrant rights organization uh, based in Mexico and in the United States. Um, she also is an award-winning leader in the migrant and worker rights movement. She's focused particularly on reforming international labor recruitment and the 112A and the, 11, and the H2B, sorry, the H2A and the H2B guest worker programs, uh, which protect low-wage workers who come uh, to the United States on a cyclical basis. So we're going to turn now to the presentation. Before I start, I just want to share a few logistics. Our, our present presenters will talk to us for about uh, 45 minutes and then we'll have a chance for um, questions from all of you. Uh, we have a microphone there, so you can just line up and um, ask your question. Um, I also want to say that if you'd like to be notified of our future events, uh, if you haven't done so already, please do sign up on the, on the sheet um, outside the door. Um, we would love to have you join us, and you can certainly learn more about our work at our website, osibaltimore.org. So thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Diana. And thank you, Open Society Institute, for organizing this Talking About Race series. It truly is an honor to be here with such inspiring speakers and courageous leaders in the fight for rights for domestic workers and day laborers. 
My name is Rachel. Yeah, it really is. Thank you. My name is Rachel Micah Jones, and I'm the founder and executive director of Centro de los Derechos del Migrante, or the Center for Migrant Rights, CDM. And my organization supports migrant workers as they move between their home communities in Mexico and their workplaces in the United States. Um, I'm actually based here in Baltimore. I'm excited to be here at the library. Mm -hmm. So domestic workers um, who, a majority of whom are women, a majority of whom are women of color, have historically been excluded from labor protections. They're excluded from the nation, our nation's minimum wage and overtime laws, the Fair Labor Standards Act. They're also excluded from the National Labor Relations Act and dozens and dozens of worker protection laws. In recent years, though, there have been a number of victories on behalf of domestic workers. Domestic workers have been organizing to win bills of rights um, in several states and also in a number of localities. And tonight, we're going to hear about those victories and about that work. And I know we're all really anxious to learn directly from iGen and Gustavo about their campaigns and their victories. Um, there are lessons from these victories that can be applied not just to the domestic work sector, but also to a number of other growing sectors of our workforce, like temporary workers and independent contractors. And so I'm just going to let them get right to it. Um, and I'm going to give each of them some time to give some introductory remarks, and then I'll ask a few questions before we open it up to the audience. So start thinking of your questions. So, Aijin, take it away. Sure. Good evening. It's really great to see all of you, and really an honor for me to be a part of this series. I think it's so important. Um, and... OSI um, actually has a long history of working with the domestic workers movement. Um, in fact, uh, we started our New York City-wide organizing among domestic workers in 2000 um, when I received an OSI community fellowship. So if some of you community fellows in the audience, you never know where it will take you. <laughs> um, and I'm also really proud to be here with Rachel and with Gustavo Gustavo's organization was one of the founding organizations of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and was one of the few organizations in the country that had the foresight to create a space and support and an infrastructure to support domestic worker organizing when at the time everyone said it couldn't be done. And Gustavo Casa de Maryland proved that it could and laid the foundation for what is now a very vibrant national movement. So it's also very fun. We never get time together, so this is actually really great. Um, thank you for that. Um, and so with domestic workers, I think everyone here probably knows somebody who works as a nanny or a housekeeper or a caregiver, right? Raise your hand if you know somebody who works. Yes. So... So you know that this is the work, we call it the work that makes all other work possible. The work of caring for the most precious elements of our lives, our kids, our aging loved ones, our homes, and yet incredibly vulnerable, arguably the most vulnerable work in the economy. And it's like you could go into any neighborhood in the country and not know which apartments were workplaces, which homes were workplaces. There's no list. They're not registered anywhere. Oftentimes, you can go to work somewhere, and the only people who know you work there are you, maybe your family, 
and the person who's hired you. So there's an incredible degree of isolation, vulnerability, uh, way in which, and in invisibility. And that all of that is compounded by the fact that there's this long history of exclusion. And I want to, because this is a forum about race, I really want to talk about this history that very few people in this country know. When the New Deal was being negotiated in the 1930s, Southern members of Congress refused to support the labor laws that were a part of the New Deal package if farm workers and domestic workers who were African American, right, part of the legacy of slavery in this country, were included in, in, this, in the protections. So in a concession to those Southern members of Congress, those two cornerstone foundational pieces in our nation's labor laws were enacted excluding farm workers and domestic workers, black workers. And so those exclusions, that history of racial exclusion of African Americans in the workforce has forever shaped not only the domestic workforce, but work in this country. And so all of the millions of women who do this work every day in this country actually live and work inside that shadow, the shadow of that exclusion. And it means that they're incredibly vulnerable. It means that it's like a Wild West environment where there's no standards, no protections. You're essentially kind of walking into a situation and anything goes. And so as an immigrant or as a person of color, a woman of color, as a single mom, regardless of the situation that you're in, you're in an incredibly vulnerable negotiating position and you're negotiating with another individual without any standards or protections. So what ends up happening is that you have wonderful relationships sometimes where people have healthy, wonderful, oftentimes relationships that go on for generations with families. And then you have the whole other end of the spectrum where modern day slavery, um, human trafficking, um, sexual violence and assault, non-payment of wages for years. I mean, the violations that you can't even imagine, they're all there. And then everything in between. And so we, as the domestic workers movement, started organizing locally in places like at CASA, in church basements, in community centers, around the country, around 25 years ago. And for most of the last 25 years, that work has been incredibly slow and incremental. Word of mouth, people telling other people they trusted, there's this meeting, there's this health fair, there's this workshop, come with me. And getting eight women in a room, ten women in a room, and slowly growing. And in the early 2000s, we started to really reach a critical mass point. And we started passing legislation at the city level. Montgomery County became the first county in the country to pass legislation for domestic workers' rights. And then we had a big breakthrough in New York State when, in 2010, it became the first state to actually establish a set of standards and protections for domestic workers, the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. And since then, 
We have continued to grow such that now there are 50 local affiliates of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in 29 states around the country. And every day we get new calls from a group of workers in Tuscaloosa who started organizing, a group in El Paso and just all over. And we feel like there's an energy here. There's real momentum. And the fact that we've been able to pass now six bills in states around the country, we're continuing to push, move history and progress forward with the leadership and the courage and the power of women who are organizing locally and then connecting their story to a larger story, both nationally and historically, of what it means for workers, low-wage workers, women, women of color, black women and immigrant women to have dignity at work. And I would say that what's at stake here is not just about the future for this growing workforce, which becomes more and more important every day as families need more care, but this, what's happening with domestic workers, we often say, um, Sarah Horowitz of the Freelancers Union often says that the future is now, it's just unevenly distributed. And I think that what's been happening for domestic workers for, for generations is foreshadowing the direction that our economy could go in. And what I mean by that is just when I look around, right, when I first started organizing domestic workers in 1998, it was very much considered a shadow, marginal part of our economy that people kind of were interested, intrigued by, right? But it seemed very different from most people's realities. And yet today, when I look around and I try to understand, I hear from workers in all parts of our economy, especially when we look around the low-wage economy, service workers, retail workers, restaurant workers, construction workers, and also lots of white-collar workers, freelancers, temporary workers, service workers of all walks of life, you're starting to see that the conditions that define domestic work for all these generations increasingly define reality for more and more of the American workforce. Uh, no control over hours, long hours or not enough hours, right? Unpredictable schedules, unpredictable wages, temporary work, uh, inability to advance in a career pathway, um, lack of preparation and training for work, I mean, all of the instability of income, all of these dynamics have defined domestic work and informal sector work for so long, and now they're becoming the new normal. And so what's at stake here is actually us collectively figuring out how we turn the tide on the direction of this economy take inspiration from domestic workers who've organized when they've said it wouldn't be possible and who've won when it was said that it would never be possible, but actually think about for the economy as a whole, how do we bring increasing numbers of workers together to put forward a vision that's about the dignity of all work and the right of all of us to have real economic security and opportunity, and particularly for workers of color whose experiences in the economy have been so shaped by racial exclusion and segregation in our economy and workforce. How do we flip the script on that together? Thank you so much. Thank you. She's an extraordinary leader, don't she?
She is the, our executive director in this extraordinary national organization that we believe that because you, because your leadership, we are going to keep making an extraordinary changes in the life of the domestic workers as well as the day laborers. My name is Gustavo Torres, and I am the executive director of CASA. Thank you very much, all of you, for being here. Diana, thank you so much for inviting us. As always, you are right there in front of the struggle with us and with our community, so thank you very much. Um, I just want to start it uh, to share with you a little bit about somebody who is a domestic worker right here in Maryland. Uh, her name is Philomena. She's from India. She came back to a few weeks ago to CASA, as many of the domestic workers came. And she approached us because uh, she was very afraid of her employer, because her employer paid her $500 a month, working 16 hours a week. And she didn't know what she can do and how she can do it. So we, you know, our organizers approached her and explained what is her rights, and what kind of work she can do. Remember, that represents that she was making $1.58 an hour. Okay? That was an unbelievable situation. So finally, we worked with her, and finally we helped her to escape uh, from that particular situation. And the way how we do it normally is that we have a, a group of volunteers and our staff that when we connect with domestic workers like her, uh, and she wants to escape from the house of the particular employer, so we go directly right over there, and we tell the employer, uh, Mr. Gustavo Torres, we are coming to rescue your domestic worker because she no longer wants to be with you. In many occasions, the employer don't want to do it, so we need to call the police. And when we call the police, so the domestic worker can leave the house and we rescue her and where and we have different locations where that particular person and this particular person can stay safe until she has a more you know better conditions but when we spoke with her and I want to quote exactly what she told us she told us I was responsible for cleaning a huge house provide childcare for three children cooks all meals and expected to, to cater parties for 45 people. Instance of being grateful for all the work I was doing for this family and their, children, and their children, they underpaid me, verbally abused me, and eventually I have to leave because they hit me. So that is the kind of situations that we see every single day, right here in Maryland, by the way. It's not in another different country or in another different state. It's right here in our state. We see that every single day. But the beauty of this is the way how the domestic worker, after being a victim, they become a leader. And for us, that is the most important contribution that we make to this particular woman because now she is one of our leaders who is organizing other domestic workers, and who is educating other domestic workers about their rights as well as their responsibilities as a person right over here in this country. Many of the domestic workers right now are Latinas 
right here in Maryland, but not only Latinas. They are from El Salvador, from Guatemala, from Mexico, but we also have a lot of um, domestic workers from Africa, as well as from India. Filomena in particular is a, is a domestic worker from India. She used to work in an embassy. Many of the cases that we have, unfortunately, happen in embassies and in international institutions because they have some kind of immunity, as you know. And they feel like because they have the power to bring a domestic worker from our country of origin, they feel that they have the power to control her or him, mostly her in these cases, and do whatever they want to do with this particular human being. In reality, they have rights, and they have all the rights, even that they are domestic workers undocumented. And that is part of our campaign all the time, to make sure that we educate them, to make sure that we inform, and that we work together to make changes in the life of our community and in the life of domestic workers. I just want to mention something that is very, very important. We always, always speak about family values and how important is family values and how important it is to make sure that we, you know, welcome, you know, families and respect families. And in reality, we don't respect domestic workers or their labors. We abuse them all the time. And we abuse them because they don't speak the language or because they look like me sometimes or because they are African-Americans. And I believe that is something that we need to speak about and to make sure that we correct that. And we know that it's happening is because in our society is a lot of racism and a lot of sexism. And I think that that is the truth and that is the history of the problem that we face with the abuses against domestic workers and day laborers. Right over here in the city, right over here in Baltimore, we come together, domestic workers, day labor, many institutions, unions, and other civic and nonprofit organizations to fight back. We have started a new campaign, and we really hope that all of you are going to support that. And it's to make sure that we pass $15 minimum wage for domestic workers, day laborers, and other low-income communities. And you know, we believe that we can do it right over here in our city, because our city has an extraordinary history of justice. Also have another, another histories that we need to keep fighting in terms of abuses and police brutality and many of those very, very important issues that we together need to keep fighting to make sure that we fix that. But we have a history of civil rights, a history of justice in our city. And we believe that if we work together, white and blacks, Latinos and immigrants, and we demonstrate that our city and our economy is going to benefit with this, I think that we can accomplish that. We believe that we can do it together. I mentioned before, and I want to mention to you again, that a few weeks ago, we had a town meeting with Congressman Cummings. Uh, right over here, in, actually in, in Baltimore County. And he shared with us his experience in his family and with his mother as a domestic worker and the abuses that she suffered 
as domestic workers, as African Americans. And it was, it was in total like 250 Latinos and immigrants, the great majority women, the great majority domestic workers and day laborers. And immediately they make the connection about that history of abuses, that history of violation of civil and human rights, and the situation that we also face every single day. So we have right now an opportunity to keep working together to bring justice together for domestic workers and day laborers right here in our city. So thank you very, very much. Thank you both so much. Can I um, share a story based sure. off of his story? Um, so a recent, CASA has done many of these rescue uh, missions, rescuing domestic workers who've been trafficked. And one of the recent ones that I bore witness to was during our National Congress when all of our member organizations send workers to come together in a conference. We had about 500 domestic workers here in Washington, or not here, but in Washington, D.C., and Casa Maryland members and leaders like Philomena um, got a word that there was a Nepali domestic worker who had been trafficked by a World Bank executive and was being held, and she needed to be rescued. And so they contacted the Nepali domestic worker organization in New York, Adhikar, who was all, they were all there for the, con the Congress, and CASA members and Adhikar members together in, in the middle of the conference went and rescued this worker and brought her straight into the arms of a growing movement for justice. So she literally went from captivity to a freedom movement overnight because of CASA and because there is now a movement that can um, actually bring justice and provide a sense of community and connection and solutions for, for workers. Now, of course, we have a lot of work to do um, starting with the minimum wage increase here in Baltimore. Um, but I just wanted to say that we've come a long way, that we have that, that we have this movement and this capacity is, um, I think, a huge, huge step forward. Thank you. Thank you both. And that was a really interesting story. And, um, and I think one of the many stories of internationally recruited domestic workers, which is also a growing segment of the domestic worker population. And these are workers who are recruited to work not just for World Bank employees on short-term visas like G5 visas or A3 visas, um, but also workers who are recruited to work as J1 au pairs um, in homes um, and a number of other um, categories of visas. And in fact, Maryland is one of the largest receiving states of internationally recruited domestic workers. Um, but I really want to get to the victories and, um, and to learn from you some of the, the strategies that you've employed. Um, and so both of you have been involved in the passage of successful domestic bills of rights. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about those bills of rights, um, what they contain, but specifically how were you able to leverage political power to win the bills of rights and just a little bit more about what it took to get there. Maybe we should start with Montgomery County because that came first. Sure, Montgomery County, Maryland. You know that county, right? 
Well, we, um, we also have operations right over there, and we believe that was very important to send a very strong message because many of the domestic workers uh, live in Montgomery County, and they are working with embassies as well as the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. So we built, and many of those employees or those particular international institutions had been abusing uh, domestic workers. So we say it's very, very important that we send a very strong message in Montgomery County. And what we did was that we, we utilized uh, our strategy to mobilize um, the domestic workers and the partners of the domestic workers, friends and allies. That is what we did. So we went, we have a lot of rallies in Montgomery County, in Rockville. We lobby each one of the county council members. And we realized that during that time, it was back to uh, five years ago, uh, we have um, four women in the county council member. And we say, well, it's your time. It's your opportunity to demonstrate your leadership as women uh, to make sure that we are going to pass this legislation. And we received the full support of the four women as well as the unanimous support of the men after we pushed really hard, by the way. <laughs> uh, but finally, we got it. It was unanimous legislation that we passed to make sure that domestic workers in Montgomery County, they have right now the obligation, the employer, the obligation to have a contract with the domestic workers in writing. That means that everything needs to be very clear and specific about what exactly is the rights and responsibilities of the employer uh, to make sure that it's not going to be more abuses in Montgomery County. So that was the experience. We are very pleased about this. It was a legislation that I believe that was the beginning of this movement. We think that we need to go back, and we are going to go back to Montgomery County to improve the legislation, because at the beginning they was very afraid about, like, we are going to be the first one, and we don't want to be the first one. And, but now that is another different jurisdictions, thank you to your leadership that already passed the legislation, and much better legislation in support of the domestic workers, uh, we are going to go back to the county to keep improving that legislation. So that was the experience that we have in Montgomery County, Maryland. Yes, probably was 2008, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in 2003, uh, domestic workers in New York, we had passed a city bill that was really about notifying workers and employers about their rights and obligations, but we realized that there were so few rights on the books because of all the exclusions in the labor law that we actually had to go and change the labor law at the state level. And so about 250 domestic workers gathered in an SEIU in a union hall downtown, and um, they, there was a simultaneous interpretation in seven languages, and in small groups, workers shared their stories and talked about what it would mean for them to have respect and recognition as workers on the job. And um, out of that co convention, was called the Having Your Say Convention. We came up with about 45 points, everything from health care to a minimum of $14 per hour to all paid holidays, paid national holidays, paid sick days, paid family leave. We had a whole list of things. Um, and we took it to a group of law students at the NYU Immigrant Rights Law Clinic who turned it into a piece of legislation 
and we took a van of domestic workers up to Albany and started talking to legislators about it. So we literally took a whole bunch of feedback from workers and turned it into legislation. Now, over the course of seven years, that legislation got changed, and through the what they call the sausage-making process of the legislature, um, it became much more pared down. But we were still able to achieve full protections in the New York State human rights laws. So for the first time, protection from discrimination and harassment. We were able to achieve uh, three days paid leave per year, a minimum of three days paid leave per year. So domestic workers became the first workers in New York State to actually have paid leave mandated by law. Um, and, uh, and a few other things like uh, days rest and so on. And that became the first bill. It, it took seven years to pass a really broad coalition of community groups, congregations, employers, organizers like Lane, who's sitting there, was a part of this campaign and organized synagogues. We had 16 different synagogues, mobilized congregants um, from around this, the state, and just a really beautiful coalition of people who believe that all work has dignity and that domestic work is really critical to all of us. Um, and that became sort of the kind of pattern where we would try to build these broad coalitions, build out some statewide capacity. Uh, Massachusetts passed a really strong bill last year that included maternity leave for caregivers. That was a big breakthrough. Um, Oregon also passed a very strong bill. So every state is a little different. Who knows, Maryland may someday be the strongest bill in the country. That will be our hope. We will. <laughs> yes, exactly, with your support. Um, and the incredible leaders at Casa Maryland who are a set of Herminia and Antonia, some of the most uh, powerful and compelling leaders in our movement nationally. So that's some of what's happening. I would also mention that we're part of a global federation of domestic workers that's in 53 countries, the International Domestic Worker Federation, and we work together to pass an ILO convention, a convention at the International Labor Organization in 2011 that is providing the context for workers to organize now around the world as well. So it's, it's growing parallel in countries around the world as well. Great. Thank you. Um, so both of you mentioned coalitions and building coalitions. Um, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about who those partners were and how, what the strategies you use to build alliances across race and national origin um, and interest area. So um, before I go to the um, coalition, I, 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 I think that it's important to also share that um, when we passed the legislation in Montgomery County, the voice of the domestic workers were essential the testimonies, the meetings with county council members, because it's different that, you know, that I speak about uh, these issues uh, when a domestic worker who have been suffered these abuses speak and share the history and become a leader and explain what is the situation. I think that I have more capacity than anybody else to convince a policymaker to be able to make the changes. So that is one piece that I... I regret and I, I missed in my 
conversation. But in terms of the coalitions, I remember that in our experience, we brought a lot of people um, that was very, very essential uh, to pass the legislation. That was very, very critical. And that is kind of the way how we operate normally for any particular campaign. The only way how we are going to be victorious in many of the issues uh, with the immigrant community or with the African-American community, with other communities, is working together in partnership. So in our experience in Montgomery County, we worked very close with the African-American community, and WACP was very major, played a major role in that. The Jewish community was essential, very critical, um, um, in part because in Montgomery County is very powerful, and they also have representation. Many, some of the county council members also were Jewish, so the participation of the Jewish community was very, very critical as well. We also engage a lot of people from the unions who um, for them was a very, very important priority. So all of these coalition, all of these organizations were very essential to make sure that we were, uh, that, we win, that we won right over there in Montgomery County. Um, I want to talk about a coalition that we're building right now, um, which is part, which is the Caring Across Generations campaign. And um, the way that it came about was actually in 2010, a bunch of our members started coming to us saying they wanted training in elder care because they were originally hired as nannies or housekeepers, but they're suddenly being called upon by their employers to care for aging relatives in their families that they support. And it makes perfect sense because the people that you trust to take care of your home and to take care of your children will also, of course, be the people that you trust to call upon when your aunt is diagnosed with Alzheimer's and needs extra support a few times a week or any number of scenarios, right? We're so connected as families. and. And they just didn't feel prepared to do that work. And so they wanted training. And it was such a pattern that we decided to take a look at what was happening demographically in this country and realized that the baby boom generation is reaching retirement age at a rate of a person every eight seconds. 10,000 people per day turn 65 in America. That's 4 million people per year. Um, some call it the silver tsunami. I call it the elder boom. Some call it the gray revolution. Everybody's got a word for it. But it is really significant. It is a significant shift in our demographic reality. And, and people who are my grandmother's generation of 85 and older are the fastest growing age demographic in the country because of our ability to extend life the way that we've been able through healthcare advances in healthcare and technology to extend longevity. And so we're about to have the largest older population in the country and really no caregiving infrastructure or system to support it. And so by 2050, the estimates are that 27 million of us are going to need support just to meet our basic daily needs. So a very strong stable workforce is going to be critical, as well as really strong supports for family caregivers and really strong support for everybody to be able to afford the quality care that they need for themselves and for their loved ones. So we realized that the need for care was something incredibly unifying in this moment, in this country. 
and that we could put the experiences of professional caregivers, elder caregivers, domestic workers at the center of a solution for how we meet our changing care needs as a, as a country. So we created Caring Across Generations to bring families, workers, immigrant communities, women's organizations, everyone, seniors, everyone together to find solutions that both make these jobs good jobs that you can take pride in and support your family on and increase access to affordable quality care in the context that people want so they have real choices as we age, because we all will. Um, and so it's about really trying to build the broadest kind of coalition, recognizing the differences within these experiences, but understanding that we have a very clear shared interest to create a solution that works for all of us. Thank you, and thank you for taking us a little bit into the future um, and to think about sort of where we're going. and. My next question is really kind of how do you see the long term in terms of what kind of structural changes um, like legal changes or other changes might be necessary for domestic workers to really have rights and, and realize those rights? So what does the future look like? <laughs> well, um, I would say that we would have if we are successful, we will have a whole new uh, infrastructure to support. Oh, okay. It's okay. It's okay. I think we would have a new um, social contract that includes a new system of an infrastructure to support caregiving for working families. So both a really strong caregiving workforce and really strong paid family leave, paid sick days, um, subsidies for care, maybe family bonds, or some kind of a system to really support people's ability to afford the care that they need as they work um, across the lifespan, child care, elder care. Um, so a new social contract that really values and understands accounts for the work that goes into supporting families across generations and really recognizing that the professional workforce that's going to be at the heart of that future really needs to be, these need to be the good jobs of the future. Just like in the 1920s and 30s when we had manufacturing sweatshops where we had dangerous workplaces that people would die in fires and horribly low wages and terrible working conditions. We transformed those sweatshop jobs into real pathways to economic opportunity and security where one generation could do better than the next in manufacturing. And I think that we can do that and need to do that in the service jobs of today and all of these jobs that are right now low-wage jobs that are very difficult to support your family on, we actually need to turn those jobs into good jobs. I, I think that you're totally right. One additional piece that I want to mention is the importance of comprehensive immigration reform. Mm -hmm. Many of the domestic workers and day laborers are undocumented. And if we don't resolve that issue, it's going to be very, very difficult to have good jobs for our communities, for day labor, for domestic workers. It's going to be very difficult to make sure that we bring justice 
uh, for these communities because they are going to be undocumented and many of the employers are going to take advantage of them all the time. So passing comprehensive immigration reform is going to be and is very essential component of this new uh, social contract uh, that we are mentioned right over here. Currently, as you know, uh, President Obama um, have an executive order uh, to make sure that millions, probably five to six million people, are going to have documentation. And right now it's stuck in court uh, because the Republicans challenge the power of the President Obama in this executive order. We still believe that sooner or later we are going to win at least that and at least five to six million people, many of them who are domestic workers and day laborers are going to benefit from this executive order. Uh, but I believe that the final and the, the best approach uh, to make sure that we keep uh, bringing more and uh, more opportunities for domestic workers and day laborers is to finally pass comprehensive immigration reform. I'd love to see comprehensive immigration reform pass as well. Um, I'm curious, you know, there are a lot of changes in our workforce, um, and one thing that a lot of people have been talking about is the online economy. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how the online economy and how um, hiring um, workers online for short-term jobs, how that's affected the rights of domestic workers, and a little bit about where you see your work going in light of the online economy. It is certainly true that the online economy is a place of a lot of growth in our economy, um, and lots of jobs in the care sector are being created through tech startups. Um, Care.com, Sitter City, Urban Sitter, Handy, Homejoy, Every day there's a new startup that you hear about that's either offering cleaning services or caregiving services, either on demand or through a marketplace model. And there are parallels in lots of other sectors as well. Um, and so we saw this actually as an opportunity, given that this is a space that is new and just coming into being, to really try to shape the quality of the jobs that are coming into being really try to get in on the front end and work with tech startups and companies and, and raise the question of what are going to be the, the quality of the jobs that you're creating on your site? Is your platform going to be a positive platform for the people who work there? And can we have a conversation about what are going to be the values that are at the heart of your business model or the Silicon Valley model? Um, and we to that end actually interviewed a whole bunch of workers who are working in the tech economy about their experiences and out of that developed a set of principles that's like a framework for good work in the tech economy. We call it the good work code. And um, you can learn more about it at goodworkcode.org, but it's essentially a set of eight simple uh, principles that uh, we believe should guide the creation of good jobs in the tech marketplace. Um, and right now we're working with a company called Care.com to specifically promote fair standards in the care marketplace and encourage employers who are finding um, employees and, and support and caregive to meet their caregiving needs in the online economy to actually take a pledge to be fair and good employers. 
um, and we're working with an employer association called Hand in Hand on that effort and together with Care.com. So we're trying different experiments to try to influence the values and the kind of standards within the tech economy that are coming into being. Um, but I definitely think that it's, it's a question that we as consumers and concerned and people of conscience are really going to have to elevate um, together. So I want to encourage everyone to start lining up. Um, and um, the microphone is over here to my left and your right. Um, so start lining up with your questions. And in the meantime, I'll keep asking. Um, but please... Did you have a question, Brenda? No? <laughs> okay, great. So, um, Gustavo, did you want to take a stab at the online economy? or? Uh, Not really. We, okay. we don't have a lot of experience with that piece. What we have experience right over here in the city is working with the day laborers who are very mm -hmm. essential for the economy of the city. And we have a, a, a center where we train them. We provide an extraordinary services for the day laborers who are not only immigrants. Mm -hmm. Our experience right here in the city, that is something that we're trying to replicate also in another different states right now, is that the day laborers, African-Americans and Latinos are coming together and working together uh, to make sure that they are going to have better salaries, the salaries right that compete between them, that they are going to be able to negotiate much better salaries uh, for day laborers. Ali, Dwarak Fishers, do you want to say your name and where you... Sure. Uh, my name is Sally Dwarak Fisher. I'm an attorney at the Public Justice Center. And I, I've sort of been struggling with a three-part question. It's, I guess I'm most interested in the Montgomery County Bill since we, we work primarily in, in Maryland, but um, you could certainly answer it with respect to any of the bills. I'm wondering uh, what sort of enforcement mechanisms there are in the bills and um, to what extent you've been able to measure or see changes in compliance and changes in um, sort of the, the state of affairs really for domestic workers. And then um, finally, this is sort of a strategy question, what strategies do you use to ensure that, um, you know, now once the bills are passed that, that workers don't resort, you know, they don't sort of go back to their isolated, disempowered ways and actually are able to stand up and enforce the, enforce the laws that you worked so hard to get on the books. So let me take Montgomery County for a second. Uh, to be honest with you, it's not a lot of enforcement mechanism in Montgomery County for that particular legislation. It's mostly, and that is part of our strategy, uh, educational campaigns to let the domestic workers know about the new legislation and how that impacts their lives. So what we're doing is every single time we are in the media, we are in the, uh, you know, the newspapers educating our community, informing them about what is the legislation in Montgomery County. But no particular enforcement is in that legislation. And that is a big lesson that we've learned through these bills is that um, we're now kind of introducing a next generation of these policies and a big piece of the next generation of the bills is going to be actually including enforcement mechanisms in the bills themselves and really anchoring it in worker-led enforcement models where we really acknowledge the role that CASAs and lo our local affiliates but other organizations around the, around the country 
are playing as an existing, trusted, honest broker source of information and resource for workers, they're already they're enforcing the bills, essentially. And so how do we acknowledge that role and actually really support and resource the community that's on the front line, talking and engaging with workers every day, um, and their role in enforcement, building that into the legislation itself. Um, so that's the future. And the past, it's completely challenging, and it is the nature of this workforce with such disaggregation. It has to be very grassroots-driven and really rooted in communities and also engaging through the media. I mean, the, the way to get the scaled kind of word out is historically been through the media. So I would say that. And one thing that is true is that one thing that people haven't accounted for is the extent to which even having a campaign for rights in a particular locality raises awareness and actually changes behavior. So New York State, after the New York Domestic Worker Bill of Rights was enacted, New York State went from number nine in compliance to tax and labor law to number two, because employers suddenly got a message, oh wait, my home is a workplace, there are standards, I better figure out what I need to do to comply. It kind of created a culture shift within the industry that was also really, really important in terms of changing practices in the industry. So that the role that legislation can play in changing cultural norms is um, often, I think, under-recognized and really, really powerful. I have um, one of those dreaded two-part inquiries. Um, <laughs> the first is that I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the demographics of domestic workers. And I'm, of course, interested in the race and ethnicity, but I'm a little bit more interested in um, sort of who is legally protected and who isn't. And the second part, then, is how those demographics are impacting the use and adoption of these sorts of protections. So we've talked about Bill of Rights and a minimum wage, but you know those who are working in the gray economy often don't benefit from those sorts of protections. So how, how many of these workers are really benefiting from the protections that are given to them by law? Great question. So I think I will try to unravel it. Um, and then Gustavo, chime in, please. Um, so one thing that was really important about what we did was actually in seeking to change the labor law in this country, it's, uh, it's this interesting contradiction in our legal system where even though as an undocumented immigrant it's technically not legal for, you, you're technically not authorized to work here, but once you're in a job, you're protected by the same labor laws as any other worker. It's just that you actually are incredibly vulnerable in trying to assert and defend those rights because you risk having your employer call immigration on you. You, you risk detention or deportation by trying to assert the rights that you actually do have. So all of the bills technically protect everyone, including the undocumented immigrant population, and we do a lot of training and education to raise awareness about that. Um, and so that's that. Demographically, it really depends on where you are in the country. Um, in the South, 
it is still significant numbers of African-American women doing this work. And then it also depends, not only geographically, but um, by profession. So whether you're looking at housekeeping or nannies or elder care, it's also quite different. So the elder care workforce, for example, is about 50% white, 50% of color. And among the women of color doing this work, it's about half immigrant. So that's the, but then house cleaning is way more immigrant women, uh, way more Latinas and Asian women doing this work. So it's, it, it really depends on a number of factors. Yeah, it's pretty much the same in Maryland. Uh, mostly Latinas in cleaning houses and all of that probably in our experience working with domestic workers, probably like 75% are Latinas. Uh, the another 25% are um, immigrants from Africa, the great majority, and from India. Hi, uh, thanks. I'm interested in hearing more about uh, Domestic Workers United's strategy of organizing the employer in addition to, uh, to organizing workers. I've read a little bit about the, uh, the conduct pledge that that domestic employers were uh, were made to sign, and uh, I I wonder if you think this is um, this is only a reaction to the uh, the relatively low level of power that domestic workers have at the point of production, so to speak, or if you believe that this kind of strategy is transferable to other industries. Um, I'm also wondering if a similar pledge of like, you know good domestic employers was used to leverage bad domestic employers in uh, Montgomery County. Thanks. Uh, well, really early on we realized that there were a lot of employers out there who actually did want to do the right thing and just didn't know what that looked like. When you're in a shadow economy, it's actually hard to know what to do. Uh, there's a lot of sh shadow behavior that happens and um, so I think the fact that these exclusions have been in place and that we've so undervalued this work and really kept it hidden um, has actually been detrimental to everyone, including employers. And employers can't actually get access to, I mean, I have employers call all the time who say, I want to do the right thing, I just don't know what that is. And so Early on, we started organizing with a group in New York City called Jews for Racial and Economic Justice who had members who actually employed people in their households and really wanted to know how to support, the, support rights and recognition for the workforce and how to really be a part of this effort to try to achieve standards. And they formed a network, and then they actually took that network national, and now there are chapters in different parts of the country and those are the very progressive employers who play an active role in advocating for bills to pass in states and also educating other employers, really acting as spokespeople and leaders. Um, and I think that what the Caring Across Generations campaign has really taught us is that any of us could be an employer at any time. When we think about the elder care crisis, I mean, millions of us will be employing people in our homes as, as caregivers across a class spectrum as well. And so 
there is a, a need for us to take this on as a country, um, to really come up with public policy and systemic solutions where everyone's voices and perspectives are at the table. But I think having organized the workers and needing to continue to organize the workers is a big priority. And then finding those employers who can talk about why having good standards benefits everyone are kind of the two building blocks for us to be able to have that larger conversation as a country about where we need to go together, if that makes sense. So we've got these activist pockets of employers, but I would say that for the most part, consciousness is not in the direction of we need to raise wages. I mean, everyone's feeling the burn of this economy, and it's hard for people to afford the care that they need. So there's a lot of questions that are underneath the experience of employers as the demographics change that we need to grapple with, in addition to organizing the employers who are really excited about doing the right thing. So very quickly, answer about Montgomery County. It's exactly the experience that we had, that when we passed the legislation, we received a lot of calls for employees who really, really want to do the right thing. Many of them are like, I'm with you. I want to do the right thing. I didn't know how I can do that. So I think that absolutely helped to educate many employers who want to do the right thing. But at the same time, people who uh, were, abusing, or were abusing of domestic workers and their labors, they received the message. So I think that we really, that legislation, even though that doesn't have a lot of you know, enforcement, um, the message is very, very important. Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Are you looking at workers employed by healthcare agencies as well as independent operators? And are you establishing physical spaces where the employees can get together, for example, as in a union hall? Um, yes. So our affiliates around the country um, serve as a home, a local home for domestic workers who want to come together. And they're actively doing outreach and letting people know that there is a home for them to come together. And um, recently, we joined forces with a group called the Direct Care Alliance, which was organizing direct care workers, home care workers, and nursing home workers who are working through agencies and in facilities. And they have state associations in different parts of the country, including many parts of the South, where there's lots of anti-union sentiment, and it's been very challenging for workers to come together. Um, so we've actually created, uh, we're rebuilding out those state associations with the Direct Care Alliance and organizing now agency-based direct care workers. Um, so that's the future for, that's a big part of the, the next direction for us. And our goal is to organize 250,000 domestic workers and direct care workers by 2020. So we need you to help spread the word and let folks know that they should come sign up. Do you want to mention just briefly the changes that happened this week for home care workers? Um, and judging from that question, it might be interesting for people to hear about that. Yes, so this week was really big um, in that history of the legal exclusion. So 
Basically, every generation of domestic workers' organizations has tried to address the exclusions in the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act. And in 1974, an African-American domestic worker who had organized a national union of domestic employees, her name was Dorothy Bolden, she was successful in getting a large group of domestic workers protected under minimum wage laws, the minimum wage piece of the Fair Labor Standards Act. But when Congress made that adjustment, they put into place something called the companionship exemption, which maintained an exclusion for home care workers and elder caregivers. And so that exemption um, has been in place And so more than 2 million home care workers and caregivers have been excluded from even minimum wage protections. So up until last week, in many states in this country, it was perfectly legal to pay a home care worker or a caregiver less than minimum wage. And the Department of Labor, basically, and the Obama administration moved a regulatory change to update the definition of companion so that full-time em- or workers who are professional caregivers would actually be protected. So they changed the definition through regulatory change to make sure that really only people who are real companions, who are very informal in the support that they provide for elders or for people with disabilities, are the ones who are included in this companionship exemption, but the professional workforce actually gets protected. So. Two million workers gained minimum wage and overtime protections in the care sector this week. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm just curious about the connection between um, what you're doing for domestic workers and health caregivers and caregivers in general to other um, occupations that are often abused, like restaurant workers um, and, and such, if there is a connection legislatively or um, if nationally there's any work that you do together. So nationally, um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance works really closely with the Restaurant Opportunities Centers United, the National Guest Workers Alliance, Jobs with Justice, the National Day Labor Organizing Network, um, all of the different networks of independent workers organizations um, who have been organizing in these places in the economy that have been sort of fallen outside of union organizing or labor protections. And, um, and so we work really closely to figure out what's a framework for 21st century labor protections how do we work together on the, the common struggles like raising wages, making sure that the um, exclusions in the labor laws get addressed, um, making sure that we eliminate the tipped minimum wage for restaurant workers, um, all these pieces that affect low-wage workers' scheduling um, laws and policies, making sure that people have more control over their hours of work, Right? These are all things that we collaborate on and support one another's initiatives around. Um, so that, that work happens ongoing. And locally, there's a lot of work that happens around wage theft, 
um, around minimum wage increases and other pieces like that, that uh, paid sick days, lots of collaborations that are cross-sector. Um, but I think there's more and more strong sector-based organizing as well. Yes, I want to mention the, um, the partnership with the National Day Labor Coalition, which is very, very important organization working with day laborers, in particular with the wage theft, because it's, uh, it's one of the campaigns that connect all of us, domestic workers, day laborers, and other low-wage workers, because they suffer pretty much the same kind of abuses, and when we come together in this campaign, that is kind of the way how we unite and make sure that we understand that we are not like isolated institutions or organizations, but we work together to accomplish uh, something justice for, for, for the workers in general. I just want to mention one other example. Um, in the U.S., we have workers that are recruited to work on temporary visas in all sorts of sectors. We have, um, in Baltimore, teachers be recruited from the Philippines. We have um, domestic workers recruited from Mexico. We have farm workers just outside of Baltimore um, recruited from Mexico as well. Um, we have guest workers in really just about every sector, in healthcare, in technology, in farm work, in cra the crab pickers on the eastern shore. And guest workers from all sectors are really getting together to push for international labor recruitment reform as part of the International Labor Recruitment Working Group, and NDWA um, is a part of that. And I mention it now because we are likely to see an effort in Maryland to get protections for those workers when they are recruited. What happens when those workers are recruited is they are often charged huge sums of money for jobs in the United States. And when they are charged those huge sums of money, they are often have to take on loans, um, put up the deeds to their homes to obtain those jobs. And so they're put in a very difficult situation and makes them extremely vulnerable to abuse on the job. And this happens regardless of visa category, regardless of sector. And so, um, labor organizations like the AFL-CIO and Unite Here, alongside nonprofit organizations like my own and um, academics are working together to try and develop solutions to address some of these abuses across sector. Uh, thank you. Um, so I work with homeless people here in Baltimore, and so I was just wondering um, if you had any tips for helping people who are excluded from the economy, uh, you know, often intergenerationally, to understand and buy into uh, the, just, you know, the idea of human rights and economic rights in particular. Thank you. Well, one thing that, um, that we realized really early on was that, um, that part of our leadership development work among domestic workers really had to address the many different experiences that, um, ha that have shaped their lives. And that in some ways, taking on healing from trauma, from past trauma, as a central and very core component to how we think about leadership development and voice um, has to be really central. So our leadership program called SOUL, stands for Strategy, Organizing, and Leadership. It has a huge focus on um, self and healing and um, centering, learning practices, and 
um, ways of thinking and being and supporting each other around healing from trauma and accounting for that in how we lead and our strategies. Um, so that's one dimension of it. The other is just creating a space where people can be whole human beings. And for you know this workforce, they're not just domestic workers. They're mothers, they're sisters, they're daughters, they're um, artists, they're... Um, Therapists, there. They, I mean, there's so many things, and um, to be able to create a space where people can feel like they can be themselves and be the whole of who they are, um, whether they're immigrant, migrant, or African American, or um, you know, from working on a farm in rural Wisconsin. I mean, that's the kind of space, and it takes a lot of intention to create a kind of space where people all different kinds of people can feel like they can bring their whole selves into a room. Um, so I think like thinking really strategically about how you create the context for people to be active and be leaders with a lot of intention about what their experiences have been in a holistic way. I don't know if that resonates at all. Um, hi, uh, my question is, what do you do in cases of domestic workers who are employees in like family-owned businesses that they have established? Let's say we have a family from Mexico and they come over and start a business here, but they bring their employers, which are also their family members, and they're being abused within the family-owned business. How do you grant protection for the um, domestic worker without destroying the family. It's a very tough situation, first of all. But yes, we, we right here in Maryland, in some occasions, face uh, that kind of situations where when um, families bring other families, members of the families like, you know, brothers or sisters or other kind of family members, and in fact, they in some occasions, suffer these kind of abuses. We don't have other choice but denounce that. And that is very, very important. So we're trying to mediate, trying to communicate, trying to speak with the family members to resolve it. But when we cannot resolve it in that way, uh, because they become you know, very active, they become members of our organization, and if they don't resolve that through the mediation, we go to court, because we believe that is not fair. I mean, people come here, uh, to make the life better, not to be slaves. That is the way how we see it. And regardless that is member of the family or not, is something that is very important uh, for us to make sure that people have justice in the workplace. So yes, it's a very, very challenging situation that we face in some occasions, and that is in our experience in CASA, the way how we handle that. Initially through a mediation, initially through a conversation, but when we don't see that problem resolved, so we have to go to court and we go to court. Good evening. Um, I moved here from New York City about two years ago, and yeah, it depends on which state you're in, because I come from West Indian background, uh -huh. and I worked in home care for over 30 years. Uh -huh. 
and um, I could never understand how they had home care workers work 24-hour days, live in with 12 hours pay. I mean, I know from state to state you have different labor laws, but I could never wrap my head around that, you know. And it just seems to me that they just keep pushing more responsibilities on the workers, but the pay is not going anywhere. I was part of the big union, 1199. Mm -hmm. I come from family members who were nurses. Mm -hmm. I mean, in particular, my mother migrated from Jamaica Mm -hmm. to England and from England to here. She came here as a trained nurse. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, other family members who are nurses. But I really just don't understand the abuses that happen even with documented people, you know. Because it seems to me like it just goes hand in hand with the documented, the undocumented. And I don't know what the Labor Department is doing about any of this, but I've been here over 30 years, and it's weird to me how things just um, seem to get worse and worse and worse. And in my opinion, they need to just create, um, not everybody wants to come to America and be here permanently, but they need to do some kind of reform so people can live here, work, and maybe go back and forth to their country. I know it's very hard to get visas issued from certain countries, but, um, you know, I think that would be the best way to do it because they worry about people having green card, but there's all these abuses going on constantly and this country is always fighting other countries about their human rights abuses and it's happening right here so to me it's very strange you know but um i just want to thank you guys for all the work you do because it's very important thank you thank you for sharing your story and i agree it's very strange (laughs) (laughs) um i do want to also name that in addition to immigration reform i think and raising wages and all the things that we've talked about that you haven't seen happen, but that ultimately really need to happen. Um, I think that the particular experiences of black women in the economy really need to be front and center in the conversation. When we think about the history of these exclusions, right, the racial exclusion of black domestic workers really created the imprint, right? We often talk about all of those of us who do this work today, we're really living in the shadow, living and working in the shadow of slavery in this country. And what that says to us is that it's not so much about immigration status. At the end of the day, we've got to figure out how we address racial exclusion in our economy and fundamentally the fact that we actually value human life differently in our economy. And that, I think for that purpose, it is really critical that black women, black workers are really at the forefront of worker rights solutions and policy addressing economic inequality and dignity in the workplace. Um, And to that end, we actually created a project uh, campaign called We Dream in Black, which is supporting black domestic worker organizing specifically, both black immigrant and African-American, who are organizing around the country, but because of this long history and because there's lots and lots of other constituencies who do this work now, it often gets forgotten that there are still black women doing this work. And we actually think they need to be front and center in the solutions. Otherwise, we'll never get at the root of why things are the way that they are and undo that, right? 
So um, that project is really trying to expand and strengthen the leadership and the organizing among, specifically among black domestic workers around the country. We really hope to contribute their experiences to developing a black women's economic agenda that we're hoping will inform this presidential conversation that's happening. There's a lot of talk this election cycle about women and what women need and what women need in the workplace and in the economy. We want to make sure that the lowest income women workers, women of color, African-American women are really at the center of that conversation. So look out for that stuff and we hope you'll help us elevate it as well. I'd like to thank you both for this remarkable work and particularly for the very constructive way it sounds like it's, it's being done. I'd particularly like to congratulate Gustavo. Uh, my wife, Rosalie, and I were in the room when CASA started. Oh. And, uh, really? Really. Uh, <laughs> Can many I give years you a ago hug? In Tacoma Park, Maryland, oh my God. long ago thank at you. the Presbyterian Church and with our friends meeting involved and many, many others. Uh, but I have a couple of concerns. You I wonder what. You must be very proud. I, I had no idea it had grown like this. I am very proud, and you should be also. Thank you. I'm concerned about what's happened with the, uh, particularly the construction workers, the temporary workers. You alluded to it a few minutes ago. Whether that situation has really improved. Uh, years ago, it was not very good with 7-Eleven being an employment center. And I know that CASA, back then, that was one of the first things that we did, was start the employment centers. But in Baltimore now, I encounter a number of people, uh, friends, who are working in that gray economy, who are pumping gas, who are working in assisted living situations, who are being paid well below minimum wage, who are being paid in cash, and really are not happy, but don't know what to do to change the situation. If they personally make a grievance to the employer, there's somebody right behind them ready to take the job. So the employer is not very seriously challenged. But I wonder if the state or CASA has a strategy for getting at that uh, sub rosa economy. Well, thank you for the question and thank you for sharing the great news that you were 30, 31 years ago. Actually, 30 years ago. So you should be probably 10 when that happened, right? Something. But um, thank you very much. I think that the issue of the, the uh, construction workers is a very, very important issue. Right over here at the city and with the support of the Open Society Institute back to 10 years ago, we also opened a day labor center right here. And it's one of the most successful centers that we have um, in Maryland, and now in Virginia, but in Maryland, is very, very successful. It's a center where uh, we provide a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunities to immigrants, as well as the African-American day laborers who come to our centers every day at 6 o'clock in the morning. So that is kind of um, a very, very important experience. We had right over here a big challenge back to 10 years ago when many workers were waiting for jobs at the corner. And, and finally, we were able to bring the great majority of them to the centers. And I think that is very, very important to have these uh, day labor centers because it's an opportunity for the employer 
and for the workers to negotiate the wages and to make sure that we facilitate that process and to make sure that we uh, educate both the employers and the workers about their rights and their responsibilities. And that is exactly what we do in every single day. But in addition to that, we provide vocational training so workers are well prepared to have the jobs in this new uh, economy that we have. And yes, we still have some problems, even though that we have a lot of programs, uh, progress with the day labor center that we have all around Maryland. Still, we have a lot of inescrupulous of employers. Employers who, because the day laborers, they don't speak the language, so they feel that they don't have any rights, or because they are undocumented. And the reality, as we mentioned before, regardless of the immigration status, you have all the legal rights in this country as a worker because we believe that it's not slaves anymore right over here in our country, and that is very important for us. So that is pretty much what we do in terms of uh, the work. We work in Annapolis also to address that issue in terms of what kind of legislation we are uh, pushing and working on, and we are working right now in that to see if we also can push a day labor bill of rights in Annapolis. So that is kind of the next steps in terms of the work that we're doing. Great. Thank you, Gustavo. I'm just going to give you guys one um, last minute to share any kind of lessons or any big takeaways that you'd love for the audience to take away with them. So please, any last thoughts? Well, it's been great to spend this evening with you, and I would say that we should keep talking about race. It's very, very important. Any solutions that we come up with in this economy really have to bear in mind uh, the way that race really structures people's experiences in the economy. And so our solutions have to really um, have that understanding in mind. And so the fact that you're here to talk about race, I think, is incredibly encouraging. I hope you continue. And to get involved in whatever may, way makes sense for you, whether to take a fair care pledge online or to um, get involved in caring across generations or to get involved in raising the minimum wage here in Baltimore to $15, yes, um, that there's a role for everyone in this movement. So thank, thank you, you very much. And I just want to say thanks again one more time to Open Society Foundation yes. for this opportunity. And I thank you so much. This is so very, very important to have this conversation among us. And again, I think that in addition to keep speaking, we really need to act. And I think that it's very, very important that we keep acting, not only speaking. And that is the reason why we offer to you this opportunity to work together right here in our city to make sure that we passed the minimum wage, $15 per hour for all of the low-income workers. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you.